Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. In the movie Star Trek First Contact, there's a moment where Captain Jean-Luc Picard has gotten so focused, so obsessed with defeating the Borg and not caring about what it does to anyone around him that one of the other characters calls him out by calling him Ahab and saying, uh, I don't know the exact words, but basically alluding to, you know, you've got to get that whale. I have never read Moby Dick. A lot of people have never read Moby Dick, but most of us probably got that illusion because it's one of the most popular and well-known literary illusions in American literature. Captain Ahab as the representative of the obsessed person who has to focus on his goal, has to capture his white whale, no matter what the consequences. Well, during this time of the strike, we're moving a field from a lot of movies and TV. And a good friend of mine, AK, who I met through a podcast we did together for Queer Ascendancy on disability and Star Wars, mentioned that they're a huge Moby Dick fan. And I thought, you know what? This is the time to talk about Moby Dick. So it'll be me and AK right after this commercial break that I really hope is not from any of the struck companies. Welcome back. This is Matthew, your host. Uh, AK, I'm so glad to have you on here. You're a first-time guest. So why don't you uh, introduce yourself a little bit and talk about yourself and kind of the stuff you do that's relevant to fandom and uh, your particular interest. And uh, yeah, let's just start with there. you and your interest in fan background in yeah, fandom. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my name is AK or Ilza. Uh, I am a uh, big-time nerd and a philosophy major who recently graduated college. I am somewhat of a content creator. I make a little bit of content on TikTok um, as well as on Instagram, mostly surrounding the fantasy genre, uh, D&D, lots of D&D content, a decent amount of Star Wars content, and a lot of disability content. Um, yeah. I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I'm a wheelchair user, and I love talking about disability in places people don't often look for it. So I wrote my thesis on Moby Dick um, when we were kind of talking about ideas for this episode and themes and stuff, and we were talking about disabled characters, uh, my Discord name, which is Ahab, came up, and mm -hmm. I think Ahab is a great character whose disability is often overlooked or trivialized as not a relevant part of his sort yeah. of narrative. Um, so yeah, I'm here to talk about that. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, so I'm going to confess, first of all, that I have I had not read Moby Dick before you and I started talking about this. Uh, there was exactly one version of American literature you could take in my high school where you didn't have to read Moby Dick, and I took it. Um, and then when you and I started talking about this, I thought, let's see if I can read the book in like the four days before we record. So instead... Like I said, I decided, let me go back and have the high school experience of Moby Dick. So I just read the Cliff Notes, uh, which they apparently are called Spark Notes. Never heard of them before, but they did chapter by chapter analysis. So I, I'm going to have some knowledge. But part of, I think in some ways, actually, it's good because I want to be a representative for probably a lot of our fans who either haven't read the book or maybe read it in high school some time ago or maybe just BS their way through high school without having read it. And Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned the disability because I want to start there because I will say, again, the thing that I've the things that I knew about this book going in were, it was very much about whaling and it was about New England whaling specifically in the early part, early to mid nineteenth century. That, like a lot of other books at that time, I'm looking at you, Victor Hugo, and Les Mis, Les Miserables. 
that it was a book that had a plot, but also the the author slash narrator would often say, oh, and now that we caught one of these whales, let me give you three chapters of philosophical meanderings on the nature of existence through the eyes of this particular experience we've just had. And I knew that, as I said, it was about this obsessive character who had to mm-hmm. and wound up putting the rest of his crew in great danger. Uh, spoilers, as I learned, uh, everyone dies except for, uh, well, the whale doesn't die and our narrator doesn't die, but everybody else does. Mm-hmm. One of the things that struck me was I am a person who has, is not only disabled, I'm an amputee. Mm-hmm, I have mm-hmm. lost I have lost my leg. I've spent a lot of time talking to people about my thoughts on disability representation in media and particularly prosthetic use in media. No one has ever said to me, have you ever thought about reading Moby Dick? Because one of the main characters has a prosthetic leg. I know. It's absolutely crazy. And I think the, so Moby Dick, like as a canonical work is, is literally everywhere. And it's, you know, Starbucks, the the brand, is named after a character in Moby Dick, and it's yeah. it's everywhere in our in our culture as Americans. Um, I was going to say, not only is the brand, but I hadn't realized this until I read the Spark Notes. It, the character Starbuck is a like a person on the ship who is constantly questioning the captain, which yeah. is exactly what mm-hmm. the character in um, Battlestar Galactica is, both the old and mm-hmm. new version. So anyway, that was another mm-hmm. cool thing yeah. I hadn't realized. Go on. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And the, the book has been analyzed a, a dozen times and or hundreds of times. And it's been called everything from, you know, a revolutionary work in queer theory to, you know, environmental studies to like uh, conceptions about imperialism and racism. And people have done all this really deep dive work uh, talking about various allegorical elements of the book. And I do think that genuinely Ahab's disability is, is pretty overlooked, despite the fact that he is not only an amputee, but he also has some like very visible, um, besides the amputee, the amputation, uh, scarring, um, mm-hmm. and, and like physical deformities that I think are mentioned briefly in the book in terms of like his aspect. But mm. he is a character who is entirely defined by his disability, not just disabled, which is, I think, even rarer to see in mm. media because a lot of times disabled characters are oh, this character is disabled, and how does that affect their life? But Ahab and the entire process of him becoming obsessed with the whale, the entire driving point of the plot of the book, um, and a lot of the kind of moral elements in the book is that Ahab lost his leg. And when we're in- And he lost his leg specifically the last mm-hmm. time he attempted to, yep. to catch and kill Moby Dick, and Moby yes. Dick fought back. Yep, yep. So Moby, he, he's a whaler. Born and raised, you know, been on whale his whole life. It's like, you know, in the last 60 years, he spent maybe four years on shore. He was hunting a whale. This whale takes his leg and uh, he says, okay, I need revenge. And it's not really about revenge. It's about struggling with his disability and struggling with what it means to like lose a body part in that Mm -hmm. way. And he really like turns it into a metaphysical and existential question, which is my entire world is gone. I, as a disabled person, like I'm not an amputee, but Mm -hmm. I did pretty abruptly over the course of, you know, a couple months to a year in like late high school, early college, lose my legs or the use of them almost 
in yeah. like, you know, pretty largely. Like I use a wheelchair every day and I used to be like an athlete and it is a world changing event to become disabled. And I think that that's the thing about Ahab that at least to me makes him such a compelling character now yeah. in terms of disability. Yeah, I really had the same experience. I mean, I, I also relate to him because I have wrestled with um, not obsessiveness the way in terms of like it's thought in terms of obsessive compulsive disorder, which I think is a term that's applied far too broadly. It's a very specific condition. But in terms of that single-minded focus of a goal, mm-hmm. where you start to lose sight of the consequences is something I've definitely wrestled with much more in my younger years. I hopefully have mostly defeated it now. But also, yeah, when I... I like you, um, I lost my leg very suddenly. I was hit by a train and woke up the next morning and was told that my leg had been amputated. I didn't even have a moment of like, you know, choosing or like being told. I just woke up and my leg was gone. And today, you know, prosthetic technology is pretty darn good today. And I, I will say it's advanced even quite, you know, in the 20 years since I've had my prosthetic leg, it's advanced quite a lot. It was real bad at the time that this was going on. Um, and in a moment of both like, you know, we'll get at the whole idea. We'll, we'll later talk about like the animal rights part of thinking about mm-hmm. the book, which I think is a very important part. Oh, absolutely. But, but putting that aside of what I'm about to say, I have to say there's something kind of badass to me about the fact that he mm-hmm. loses his leg because of a whale mm-hmm. and then has a, a prosthetic leg made from whale mm-hmm. bone. Yeah. Like that is I, just the ultimate like F you. Um Ahab, it, he's such a metal character through and through. And like people don't think about literary classics as being that way, but yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So why do you think it is that this side of the character and I'm going to have you on at a later point to talk about disability and disability media. So I don't want to go too deep on this particular topic, but I think it's a good place to start. Why do you think it is that his disability is so often never mentioned? Or if it is, it's not, it it might be just that, you know, you think of him as like one of the pirate or, you know, whaling Mm -hmm. people who's got a peg leg because that's now kind of a, a, a trope, but it's never really thought of as part of his character. Uh, I think there's probably a couple of things. I think for one, um, it's not, it's not mentioned a ton in the book. It's mentioned pretty intensely in like his introduction. Um, Mm -hmm. Like there's a, there's a chapter that's just titled Ahab. And when he's introduced, it's mentioned very prominently. It's mentioned later in the book when he loses his peg leg that is made of whalebone and has to have it replaced. And it's mentioned when he meets another whaling captain who lost his arm to Moby Dick and they kind of like have a little bit about their prosthetics um so that's one part and it's a very dense very thick book with a lot going on so it's easy to overlook any individual piece I also think at the time it was written um you know whaling accidents were common and boating accidents were common and it was not disability culture was not the same for mm-hmm. particularly very masculine sort of um, jobs where it was like very valorant and kind of like romanticized in a lot of ways, but also just incredibly brutal and low class in a lot of ways. And so, right. you know, yeah, you're on a whaleboat and you lose your arm, you lose your leg, you lose a couple fingers, you lose some toes, you lose your hearing, like, oh, well, uh, people die. Like right. in the grand scheme of things, that's just kind of, how it was and so 
and, and you know, in, in like 1850, when the book was written, like how good was your medical care? How like were people really right. thinking about it in the same way? And the answer is no. Um, but also, I think it gets brushed off because people like to me as a disabled person reading the chapter where it's explained like Ahab used to be like he was in, he was a mean captain, but he was like competent and sane and smart and like right. he was a good whaler. Like he was a captain already. And then he loses his leg and then he goes mad in the like three months journey that it takes the boat to get back to, to shore because him, him and his amputated leg, which is, you know, amputation in that, like on a whale ship, your carpenter was your medic. So yep. it's a brutal process. It's a painful process. You're not like, who knows if we're going to live. He like laid in a hammock and went crazy. And this process gets described and people are like, Oh, okay. Like, you know, something happened. He went nuts. He wants revenge. But like, unless you've experienced like trauma or disability, the mm -hmm. meaning of that is easy to kind of, oh yeah, it's a checkbox for a plot point, but you don't think about it as like immediate and proximal and the connection yeah. between those things being like very clear. I also just think that uh, there's a lot of like, when Ahab later starts ranting and raving about this whale, he does so in a pretty philosophical way that I think is easy to overlook. And like when I read this in high school, I did not at all catch any of this. Like it all flew yeah. over my head. And I didn't, like I really thought Ahab just wanted revenge on the whale. And if you look a little deeper into the book, it's actually that Ahab thinks the whale is like the personification of all evil and everything outside of his control. And if yeah. he kills the whale, he will, he's like fighting God to regain control over his own personhood and life, which is like, way different than wanting revenge for being wronged and also way closer to the struggle of like disability and feeling like you've lost yourself and control of your life and control of your surroundings or that there's some cruel benevolent being like what did I do to deserve this like those thoughts yeah. are are way more like immediately recognizable to a disabled person very much so very much and there's a couple things I want to say there one is that it is very clear to me, and, and the research kind of uh, pays this out, Melville spent a lot of time researching this book. You know, a lot of people will be like, oh, I've heard of whalers once or twice. Like, I think I must know what's going on. No, he researched it. He learned all about whaling. He learned about, about whales and the science of it and the, the processes of it. And in, in the course of doing it, he talked to a lot of sailors, including people who had lost their limbs. And I think it's very <laughs> intentional, therefore, the caveat that I want to add that I think is important to mention, especially the way you were talking about it, um, especially because as you brought up, um, he goes, you know, mentally quite unstable, as do a number mm -hmm. of other characters. Mm -hmm. I think, and again, I, I haven't read the book, but there were some trigger parts, particularly about the mental things that happened to him and other characters that I did, like, read those chapters. Mm -hmm. I think this is a fantastic representation of physical disability. As someone who also has a number of mental disabilities, mm -hmm. I think it's a pretty poor representation of those, to be pretty clear. And yeah. I don't say that as like, oh, that's a reason not to read the book. I say this was a book written in 1840 where the understanding of mental illness was completely alien. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when we talk about that, like, I think I just think that's worth mentioning because we're focusing no. on this book as like a good work of disability. Well, but, I think. Good. 
yeah, I was going to say, I'm not even, I'm not even sure that I would say it's a good or a great representation of physical disability because Ahab at the end of the day is still vilified and demonized in a lot of ways that, you know, the, the white ivory leg is playing into, especially when the theme of the book is that the white whale, its whiteness itself is like a, a it's like a mark of evil and that's extended to Ahab by uh, his prosthetic. Mm-hmm. And like, all of those things are really not good. And there's a lot that Melville is doing in terms of mental health that's like also not ideal. I think, well, okay. The mental health in Moby Dick also gets overlooked because the opening lines of the book, I don't know if you looked at them, but Ishmael gets on, like decides to go whaling because he's mm-hmm. suicidal. And right. so like the the kind of mental health themes of the book are not like they start from a really weird place, right. which is treating mental health in a completely foreign way to the way that we treat mental health today. And there's a lot that, you know, makes me tilt my head and makes me narratively question things. But on the other hand, I feel like there are elements of the mental health aspects and characters that I see that are not necessarily good representation in terms of where they fit narratively in the story. But if you take them in isolation, are also peculiarly accurate representations in certain instances. And like they were taken out of the narrative and just looked at independently would maybe be fine. And the problem is the role they're playing in the narrative or the the way that they're overlooked so quickly. And so it's like something that I've struggled. I mean, I've read this book a bajillion times. Like I said, I wrote my thesis on it. And so there are like, particularly with Ahab and particularly with Starbuck Mm -hmm. and Ahab, and the dynamics between the two of them and Ahab like very actively struggling against the, you know, what, what Melville calls his like monomaniac quest for the whale. Like people call Ahab mad or they call him insane. And I really like, I call, I don't know if I've heard mad just in terms of using the literary kind of right. title, but I really don't, I really don't know if Ahab is a, Ahab as a character. Other characters who certainly have probably things going on that are more actually akin to mental disability or mental illness. But I don't, I, I, I often have gone back and forth on like, is Ahab actually like, do, like what, and I'm not, I'm not a doctor, but yeah, like, I don't like, we call Ahab mad, but I think it's an exaggeration. And I think that every step of the way in the book, we see that Ahab does have like a, a very like traditionally classically like quote unquote well-functioning like mind and he's making yeah. really well thought out decisions and it's not actually like whatever Ahab is struggling with is, is existential, not so mm-hmm. much clinical in a way that's like, yeah, you could say he has depression. You could say he has whatever mm-hmm. else is going on, but it, it's so much broader than that, which is something that I, as a person who struggled with a lot of mental disabilities, like finds mm-hmm. refreshing. Um, yeah, I'm, it, to be clear, for one thing, I'm mostly thinking of Pip in terms of the way oh, that this yeah. is used. Mm-hmm. But it's more, but I, I think, like, you're right. I think Melville, I think, does have some accurate understandings of the way having your world fundamentally upset in the mm-hmm. way it happens, both in the, like, the physical manifestation of it is losing his leg, but also just the idea of, you know, 
humans hunt whales. Sorry, let me mm-hmm. say that. Humans hunt whales. Yeah. In this case, because part of the idea is that Moby Dick, like, toys with them and, like, goes after the boat. Like, the whale mm-hmm. hunts them. And so, yeah, I, I kind of my point is more just, and I think this is in part because he probably had access to a lot of people who had physical disabilities. At this point in time, yeah. you wouldn't go and talk to someone who had mental disabilities because either they never right. never knew they had or they'd right. be in a sanitarium. Right. And so I think words like crazy and mad are thrown around a lot. And I, yeah. and I would say I think you're right. I think I think there's something fundamentally lazy about saying, mm-hmm. oh, this character is crazy and therefore we don't have to ascribe any rationality to them. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. in truth, most people who have mental disabilities of some kind, from the you know, very functional to the like unable to really connect with others because they're experiencing reality fundamentally different than everybody mm-hmm. else. There is a rationality to it. Mm-hmm. It just often starts from very different first causes or, you mm-hmm. know, whatever it is, or again, they're dealing with reality fundamentally different than our own or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I think, yeah, I think with both Ahab and Pip, they experience things that are so different from whatever what they have always thought mm-hmm. they should experience that their mental functioning starts to go in directions that the rest of us think are fundamentally not okay, with in some cases good reason. But yeah, to just call it mad as though that means like, oh, he might come out with you know a teapot on his head tomorrow right. is, is right. not accurate. I'm wondering, like, because I have thoughts about the like, like the portrayal of Ahab, and I spent more time with the character of Ahab. But I'm wondering mm-hmm. what, like, when you're talking about the portrayal of Pip, what things kind of stood out to you? Because I want to try and like stick in sure. that kind of realm. Well, and let, let me give at least my understanding of a 30 second version of Pip again for those who don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, Ahab is the captain. Ishmael mm-hmm. is our narrator, and he's a fascinating character in his own. Pip is a young black boy. Um, the, the treatment of race is very interesting in these books, and we'll get more into that. Yeah. But I think there's supposed to be some indicate he has a southern accent. I think there's supposed to be some indication that he's an escaped slave or a freed slave, or maybe he's the child of freed slaves. Certainly, this you know, all this is happening in the boats are all launching from New England, which was at that point mm-hmm. really a hotbed of abolitionism. So there were a lot of escaped slaves there. But he's a young boy who is um like he's supposed to be like eleven or twelve. Um mm-hmm. And he's kind of he's the cabin boy on the ship, but he's definitely looked down on by everybody, both because of his age and because he's black. And mm-hmm. he has real trouble following orders, um, in part because he's eleven. And yeah. as they get into the portion of the book where they're actually hunting whales, uh, you learn an awful lot about how that process works, and that you know mm-hmm. this is long before harpoon guns. This is when. You had to like you had the main whaling boat, and then basically kind of rowboats would go out with someone would throw a harpoon, and then there'd be line attached, and the other person would have to like help. And he's in one of those boats, and he screws something up, and so they have to let go of the whale because um, he basically screws up because he's terrified when the um, whale comes to get him. And uh, mm-hmm. in the course of that, he's thrown overboard, uh, and he's rescued by one of the mates who are uh, mm-hmm. three of the only white people on the ship. And we'll definitely talk about that in a bit. And the person who rescues him Stubbs, is kind of angry with him and says, look, if you do that again, I'm going to leave you behind. I'm not going to make, I'm not going to rescue you. Uh, yeah. 
that situation comes up again. He again panics 11-year-old boy, mm-hmm. and he panics and screws things up for the other whalers, and they just leave him behind. They leave him in the water to uh, while they go and try to finish off the whale. And he is rescued later, and as, as I understand it, basically like something in his mind cracks because of that. Yeah. Because yep. he just has – in his mind, he has died – uh, and mm-hmm. it's the experience of almost drowning. was also the experience mm-hmm. of being left behind by the people. Mm-hmm. And then as Ahab becomes more and more kind of uh, off kilter, him and Pip become closer and closer. And he often kind of talks about Pip being the one who understands him. Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of my understanding, again, from the Spark Notes. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But I did read a couple of the specific chapters too. Mm-hmm. How, how, how much do you think that fits or doesn't fit with... No, well, I think that's trade? basically perfectly accurate and i think both pip and ahab like are described as crazy or described as insane or described as mad and i think those words are used um i and so yeah pip pip falls overboard and i think the the phrase and i could be wrong i'd have to go look but the phrase used is like his body survived but his soul was drowned like he's he's waiting in the water for hours which is like impressive like it's a very long time that he gets left behind because there are they're hunting whales and you have, you have to follow the whales. Like the whales are running like, and so it's a very long time before he gets picked up. And once he gets picked up, it's not just that Ahab is closer to him or, or like feels like he understands him. It's that Ahab thinks that Pip is now like some sort of like, that there's some real deep meaning that Pip has access to that other people can't reach. And there's a lot that kind of goes into all of that and and the words madness the words insanity the words crazy are thrown but really what is portrayed is that both of them have been through extremely traumatic experiences mm-hmm. and bond in a silence over the kind of like camaraderie of that traumatic experience and yeah it has relation with like like relationship with pip is I mean, it's uncomfortable by nature of Pip being an 11 year old boy and Ahab being like a six year old man. Like, mm-hmm. but it, it, like Ahab almost elevates like th- this really traumatic experience that, like, obviously does mess Pip up mentally. Right. Like, it like 11 year old being in that situation, regardless, they're going to have some serious like trauma coming out of that. But like, elevates Pip kind of to this status on the ship that he didn't have before, and so mm-hmm. it's almost like a a weird like like a baptism for Pip that he like yeah. is now a part of the crew and a part of these men and he's been through it and he knows what it is and he sees the true nature of the world and Ahab's like aw look at this and yeah it, in terms of the mental health kind of dynamics going on there Melville is very clear kind of at every step of the way that like whatever is going on with Ahab, he's not lost any of his intellect. And like, he says that very clearly, like he says very clearly that like Ahab, you know, quote unquote goes mad, but he loses none of his intellect, which is like part of the horrifying part is that he's smart enough to know like exactly what he needs to be doing. He's in touch enough with the world that he's like making these decisions. And Pip, you know, Pip is 11. So Pip doesn't have that Mm -hmm. intellect in the same way. And so Ahab kind of, like touts him as pure or like, I don't know, somehow like 
I don't, I'm honestly thinking about this now and like I'm making connections and things, but like, yeah, Ahab's obsessed with the white whale and, and Ishmael goes on this long rant about how the blankness of the whale is what's so horrifying about him, but also so cool because it's like, it's the thing without color. It's just so like, right. it all familiar with Taoism. It's like the uncarved walk. It's like the ultimate unknown blankly. And Pip kind of like becomes that for Ahab, but in a positive sense, like personified I, in a person and an ally. I, I mean, as I said, we're, we're going to talk more about how race is portrayed in this. Yeah. Uh, and I, but I do think in that regard, the fact that Pip is black and is described as fairly mm-hmm. dark skinned is very important because he is also yeah. that, that if, if Moby Dick is the epitome of evil, uh, mm-hmm. through his whiteness, then, then mm-hmm. Pip and blackness. And I, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about the racial stuff in the, it, to be sure, but I think that's definitely a part of it. Two quick things though, I just wanted to add from what you were just saying. First of all, uh, if part of you're wondering how Pip survived in the water for some time, it may be because you made the same assumption I did, which is that this was whaling in the North Atlantic, you know, because that's mm-hmm. what we tend to think of is that, and there certainly was a lot of whaling done there. Yeah, that's not mm-hmm. true. This book takes place. Uh, it, it the start it starts and ends in Nantucket, um, but most of the book takes place in the South Seas. Like they go yep. and they sail yep. around the the bottom of Africa, and the, most of the mm-hmm. book is in what's now like Java and Indonesia and stuff. So the water yep. would be warm enough for him to survive that whole time. Yep. That blew my mind. The idea that people were going mm-hmm. all the way from New England to there, um, especially because we learned they're just doing this for oil. Like they're leaving yeah. the carcasses almost entirely left behind. The other thing, though, is and I think this is where we kind of wrap up the the, the mental stuff and the the physical and kind of move on to some other things. But I think it's worth in mentioning. Uh, in kind of an odd foreshadowing in my life, before I lost my leg, I was working at a disability rights law firm, and one of our client groups was often people who were mentally, uh, you know, had mental issues and were seen by others as mentally ill. This was in the mm-hmm. early to late, ni- late 1990s. And often there would be lawsuits brought by their family or others of like, they have to be medicated. They have to, you know, force them to be normal. And mm-hmm. we were trying to really push back against that. And one of the definitions that we used that is now, I think fairly commonly used is that the only point at which mental issues become something that, uh, I don't say that, that, you know, obviously we want to help everybody to have the mental health that they want to have. Mm-hmm. That the only point at which mental illness becomes a significant problem where intervention might be needed, even if they're not wanting it, and even then it's very dicey, is when they're actually posing a harm to others. And that right. I think that's one of the things that I think that's, I think, a way that we can talk about Ahab becoming a villain mm-hmm. here is that for him, it, like I think if if the if at the end of the book he was like I'm going to go off on my whaling boat and uh, on my little dinghy and go to hunt Moby Dick and you right. all go safe, it's a fundamentally different book. It's right. that like Picard was doing in First Contact. I think that's such a brilliant analogy for it. He's putting everyone else in danger, and as it turns out, leads everyone else to their death, despite right. numerous people. Go right. Ahead. No, and, and yeah, I was going to say, and, and the thing is that he was like very actively and very clearly warned by both people who are on his ship and people from other ships who encountered this whale. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I think that's the, I, I think that's where you can start to say, like, that's when, you know, when, when your mental focus on something, when your trauma is causing you to do harm to others or to lead others into harm, then yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, it's really worth like looking at that as a problem. And I'll say because of that, like you said, I think some of the f- some of the feelings that Ahab goes through 
are things that most people, I don't say most, but that many people who have been disabled, especially many people who've had it, as you said, in kind of a traumatic way, and certainly for me as a fellow mm -hmm. amputee, I really related to. Mm -hmm. The thing mm -hmm. is, I don't go to the places Ahab goes. And right. it is one reason why I think it is so significant that we get introduced to another character who has mm -hmm. also an amputee because, you know, I think one of the things that often is a problem is when a piece of fiction can kind of be like, oh, yeah, if you have mental trauma, you're going to turn into a serial killer. You're going to turn into a right. supervillain right. or something like that. And having another character who has had their understanding of their self, of their body, mm -hmm. of their place in the world so fundamentally changed because they lost a limb from Moby Dick, yep. who very pointedly doesn't have the experience, uh, to me that made it feel so much better. Because it is Melville yeah. clearly saying, I'm not saying that everybody who loses a limb is going to go in this direction, but that if you lose a, that, that it is losing a limb that caused... Uh, was a big part of at least causing him, mm -hmm. causing Ahab in particular to go in this direction. It, it makes yeah. it a particular story instead of a general one. Yep. And I think that, you know, we don't see the other, um, the character that you're referring to is uh, named Captain Boomer. And he's the captain of the ship that the Pequod runs into right towards kind of the end of the book. Mm -hmm. And it really, like, I mean, so we see mental illness in several other characters who are all not causing harm to others in the way that Ahab is and managing their mental illness in, in more responsible ways, uh, although not necessarily all responsible ways. But we see a pretty broad diversity, like again, starting with Ishmael in chapter one. Mm -hmm. But Captain Boomer is like this, he's described as jovial and happy, and he's really just glad to have escaped with his life. And he kind of cracks a joke about his arm and Ahab's leg. And he's not, I'm sorry, my cat is like running around causing chaos. But um, he, uh, yeah, he, he really poses like a really solid dichotomy. And he's one of the kind of last lines that's like, he really warns Ahab. He's like, hey, going after this whale, like you and I both lost a limb. Like we both know, mm -hmm. like going after this whale, like if you keep at this, it's madness. And I think, I don't know, there's something I think that is that I appreciate in that, which is that like the, like regardless of, trauma regardless of mental disability regardless of physical disability like you're responsible for your actions and obviously there are people who are experiencing the world in a variety of ways but mm -hmm. as a as a person again a bunch of different disabilities including mental disabilities and trauma and all that stuff like really being reminded that like Ahab is a, is a tragic character because he has suffered and because he's been through all of this but like mm -hmm. he is choices and obviously not all uh, not all disabled people and not all people with mental disabilities are have the capacity to make those choices like that is a privilege but he is making choices and we are reminded that he is making choices and not that his path is being chosen for him by his disability which i think is yeah. very nice definitely and i'll just say one last thing about that and then i want to move on um mm -hmm. i remember when i lost my leg I, I work with physical therapists. I also work with occupational therapists who really tried to help me figure out, okay, your body is different. What are some tips and tricks and things? And and I figured out some of my own since then. And and there's a it's a throwaway thing in the book. But one of the things that Ahab realized, you know, a ship is moving all the time. And mm -hmm. even today, you know, I don't have an ankle, so it's very hard to make the adjustments that allow me to stay in mm -hmm. place. And with a peg leg, it would be far, far worse. Um, I, I can actually say, 
uh, a friend made me a peg leg for a pirate costume. So I have actually walked on a peg leg too. I know how hard they are. And mm -hmm. so what Ahab does is he drills a hole in the deck near where the captain should stand so that he can keep his like mm -hmm. leg balanced in that hole. So beautiful moment. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so next let's talk about, I think, one another of the really big issues that, again, I, I think sometimes gets alluded to a little bit, but not talked about very often, which is the way race and, and religion and those differences are talked about in the book. Because my understanding is it is being written by, by a white man in New England in the 1840s who has a lot of the prejudices and things like that. But as I said, New England at that point was a very abolitionist society. There was a lot of, uh, you know, for the time, attempts to move towards better racial awareness. And, and it seems like the book is really trying to take a step in that direction, too. Talk to us somewhat about how race is treated in the book. Yeah, um, I will start by saying that there are definitely some insensitive racial moments. Um, mm -hmm. There is a lot of insensitive racial language. Uh, yeah. And that, you know, something that needs to be acknowledged and considered and condemned. Uh, that being said, I think there, I have read more literature about race in Moby Dick than I have about disability in Moby Dick, I think just because of um, the popularity of it in, yeah. in more recent years. And there are some really cool things going on with like race and colonialism and uh, religion in Moby Dick mm -hmm. that are way ahead of their time. Um, and it really starts when Ahab, uh, I'm sorry, not Ahab, when Ishmael, our, our main character, meets his companion, who is his companion through the entire book, who is also like a lot of like queer stuff going on there, um, mm -hmm. who is Queequeg. And Queequeg is, uh, you know, um, I believe he's a Polynesian Islander, but mm -hmm. he's indigenous. He was like a prince. He like got thrown out of whatever kind of group he was in or with or like his, his indigenous land. And, and the, the story there is really vague, but he's a whaler now. And Ishmael meets him because they have to share a bed in an inn, which is like really funny as a trope mm -hmm. in general, but, and they become best friends. And Ishmael, who is uh, like, you know, born and raised Christian, but doesn't seem to particularly have any strong feelings about religion one way or another, from the get-go says like, it's better to share a bed with like a sober cannibal than it is to share a bed with a drunk Christian. And because Kukai is established as like, he's selling heads, like shrunken human heads on when they, the night they meet. Mm. And so Ishmael's case on Queequeg is like, well, a good person's a good person. Like, you know, he says there are bad, uh, yeah. So Ishmael kind of his take is that there are bad Christians, there are bad white people, um, there are like misbehaved people all over the place. And so when you find good people, like treat good people as good people. And now obviously there's like issues with colorblindness and all of that stuff going on. Mm -hmm. but. On, the other thing is that on whale boats and at sea, and this was true kind of before, you know, before the 1850s, but there was always a little bit of a wiggle room out at sea in terms of a lot of things that were considered culturally normative. And obviously there were boats and ships and entire shipping practices that were incredibly problematic in a bajillion different ways. But mm -hmm. whaling culture was very much, we need to kill whales. And killing whales is an absolutely near impossible feat. Like, mm -hmm. and 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 to go out for four years and kill as many whales as you can is incredibly difficult. And you don't get the the privilege of caring if the person next 
see you is, you know, from the same background as you, the same race as you, the same religion as you. And Melville does a good job of also not going like complete colorblindness or complete mm-hmm. erasure. It's very clear about the, the racial dynamic on the ship, which is the three mates are white and the three harpooners are people of color. Um, but there's some really interesting things that Ishmael slash Melville takes real time to explain that I think like really make clear Melville's intentions about uh, race and religion and colonialism. And this is a kind of a weird fact that a lot of people don't know, but original copies of Moby Dick were actually rejected by publishers for being too anti-colonialist, too anti-missionary, mm. too um, republic or whatever. And so one of the things that I think is one of my favorite like moments in the book that really clued me into something intentional going on with race, aside from like, you know, the, the whiteness of the world, of the race, is Ishmael takes time to specifically tell us that the harpooners um, used to be the, the primary person you went to on a ship. Like the mates were secondary to harpooners on a whaling ship for a really mm. long time because the harpooners are the ones throwing the harpoons in the whale ship, so in, the, in the small boat. And they're making the kill shots and they are the most important person in the, like, in the right. final hunting whale. And, and Ishmael is like, yeah, so, you know, we have these first mates and in recent times, I mean, recent being like the 1850s, he's like, in the old days, which I don't exactly know how long before it was, but the harpooners held higher rank were were respected more clearly than the than the mate and it's only recently that we've started like acknowledging the hierarchy of even the captain over the the head harpooners and that being said in the heat of the moment in the chase of the whale your first mates are in charge right up until you are on top of the whale at which point it is the harpooners because they are the ones with the expertise they are the ones with the skill they are the ones who know how to do this right in this game longer they they know this like they know it better they're more adept and the harpooners the three harpooners on the boat are Queequeg, Tashtego, and Degu and I so Queequeg is I believe Polynesian Islander Tashtego is African I think no that's Degu okay because Degu Degu I believe was a formerly a slave right formerly enslaved and i think Tashtego is also indigenous to mm-hmm. the americas but i do not remember from where and so right. all three of them um honestly are very prominently featured in the book and there's a lot of instances where ishmael very specifically compares them to their first mate counterparts because every individual small whaling boat when they go out in the rowboat is one harpooner one mate and every time he does, he's making a, like a mockery of the mates and their right. incompetence and their clumsiness and their arrogance and how, like how it's so funny to watch Stubb order around Dagu, who's like this this very tall, very muscular, very like strong and competent black man who like Ishmael describes as very beautiful and like Stubb is this short like literally stubby like fat white man who mm-hmm. like is like 
described as just very mean and not very pleasant to be around. Yeah. And, you know, over and over and over again, Ishmael emphasizes that like this dynamic is, is just like odd and backwards and the yeah. mates are, are like there, but are they really necessary? And, um, they're the ones causing a lot of problems and like being like, they are the difficult ones on this otherwise right. relatively harmonious ship. Uh, and at the end of the day, Tashego is the, the one who, when the ship is sinking, like is the last person kind of standing, like, like flying mm-hmm. a flag. Yeah. And yeah, there's, like there's a lot to unpack in terms of those three characters mm-hmm. alone. So we can, I guess, just start there. I mean, one of the first things I noticed, and the, I think as, from what I understood, this is subtler than some of the specific race stuff, but I think it's mm-hmm. definitely there. Part of the sort of anti-colonialism message is mm-hmm. the book, it winds up therefore being about that these indigenous people are hunting the whales that are in their, like, native mm-hmm. areas you know so and and, and and like again not to say that all the south seas are the same it's a bunch of different countries and, and different you know kingdoms and and individual groups but still it's it's their part of the world mm-hmm. but in order to do that they have to travel all the way around the world to get to america mm-hmm. and then under an american ruled boat go back mm-hmm. to their own home waters to hunt the animals that live in those home waters to then go mm-hmm. all the way back to the Americas to sell the thing that they got there and then maybe get it and they'll get a cut of it with the white people getting a higher cut. And so that alone right. is, I think, a very striking, mm-hmm. you know, bit about the way white, you know, colonialism sucks out the resources from an area. Yeah. But also, and, I just, go ahead. Oh, oh, no, go ahead and finish. Yeah. I'll, I'll ramble again. But then also, I was really struck by the, so much of the way Ishmael and Queequeg get to know each other, it, mm-hmm. it, Ishmael gets to be the audience avatar character of, he does see him as a savage, see him as a mm-hmm. cannibal, you know, because mm-hmm. those are the myths that, that have been taught to him. Mm-hmm. And that through the, through the course of the book, that has changed pretty fundamentally. And I think a very good example of a similar kind of story is uh, for anyone who's read Huck Finn. The dynamic between Huck and Jim is very similar. Like in both books, both um, uh, Mark Twain and Herman Melville are trying to write anti-racism books. They're creatures of their times. They both use a lot of racist language that today we would find very problematic. But it's a very similar kind of story. And in a moment that I found that was both both touching, but also I think showed the limits of Melville's cultural knowledge, which again is understandable. He describes Ishmael coming across um, Kwekwe during a time of religious ceremony for him. For him, and mm-hmm. it, there are elements of it that feel very Islamic, and which does make some sense. Indonesia and some other parts of the South Seas were Islamic countries going back to the, you know, times early after Muhammad himself, uh, someone 10 centuries or more, but also he's worshiping an idol. And, but also the time is called something that sounds a lot like what we today would hear as Ramadan. And it, it, I didn't, I don't know to what extent Melville thought 
that the people of the South Seas had practiced religions or they may have had some contact with Muslims. And so some of that had bled in because idol worship is very, 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 very much not Islamic. Or if that was him sort of trying to say, here are things that foreign religions would have because he didn't understand Islam. But either way, it is still a very beautiful moment of Ishmael coming, because I think religion and race are very tied into each other, mm-hmm. and Ishmael coming to understand, like, no, this is a, a ritual that is important to him, and even wanting to kind of, you know, observe it. Mm-hmm. And I, so in that, like, kind of scene, Kwekwag uh, is praying to a little, like, idol who's called uh, Yojo or Yojo. I've heard it pronounced mm-hmm. a variety of ways. I don't know if it's an actual figure or not. Like, I haven't done enough research into that. Um, at all but yeah ishmael sees him praying and and you know originally is like maybe i'll try and disturb him and then just lets him be and is worried about him because he's sitting in a in a kind of a side position for many many hours and, and ishmael expresses like that he's worried but then he's like eh, it's a peculiarity like we do your thank you and then queequeg is like well i prayed and basically like i was told you are the one who needs to pick what boat we are about to get on and so ishmael goes and to look at the boat to pick one and ishmael then encounters um a character named Elijah, who like the prophet Elijah, yeah. who like kind of prophesizes to Ishmael about which boat he should pick. And so it's a really interesting, like both of these two characters with these two different religious backgrounds are still are receiving some sort of like divine or or mm-hmm. uh, religious intervention or or whatever that's like pushing them in the same direction and with each other. And then later in the book, Ishmael like both brings Queequeg to church with him, but also like prays with Queequeg. And there's a lot of religion mixing that happens on the boat. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think it's all very intentional. And I think um, here was an area, I mean, as a, someone who's really studied Christian history, I know that um, the time that this is taking place, New England in the 1850s, or the book was published in 1851, this is during one of the, I think it's called the Second Great Awakening, where there was incredible religiosity, um, mm-hmm. you know, and it was anti-slavery, a lot of the, especially in New England, but it was also very strict on like who was going to heaven, who was going to hell, and, mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. And a great deal of religious, uh, you know, similar into in to parts of the, this country today, uh, but to an extent that was not seen in most parts of American history. Um, mm-hmm. and I think one, one of the themes, at least that I really got out of, and again, tell me if I'm, I'm wrong, you have much more direct experience in the book than I do, but is that one of the ideas is like, okay, nice, even lines that separate religions and that let people go to religion on Sunday morning for an hour or two and have these experiences that all works in New England in the mm-hmm. nice, safe area. But that when you are in this sort of primordial battle with nature in the midst of the ocean and there's typhoons mm-hmm. and there's uh, you know storms and there's electricity in the air and there's a primordial force of evil as, as one of them sees it at least in the force of this whale, that religion is now kind of any port in a storm. And it's kind of like yep. all these different things can have meaning because we are just tiny and insignificant at the hands of God or the gods or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And yeah. just the last thing on that, you mentioned Elijah being a, a very religious name. Ishmael is a very religious name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and Ahab. Spe- yeah, and, and Ahab, and specifically Ishmael is the son of 
Abraham, who is cast mm -hmm. out. For those who don't remember, right. or you know, never paid attention because there's no need to if you don't care about it. But in the book of Genesis, when when he has a, Abraham has a has a child with his slave, with his wife's slave, really, and it's non-consensual, and all we can talk about that. Ishmael is born, but then later he's given a true son because he makes his covenant with God, and so Ishmael is cast aside. And I think so. Him representing this figure, because as you said a while ago, Ishmael was suicidal, and he kind of goes on this ship because the ship is kind of a, it, it's basically a boat of the damned. It's where yep. everyone kind of thinks they're already dead to some extent. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and I think you know the. Like early on, Ishmael talks about, and just in terms of work and capitalism, he talks about the universal thumps pass all around. It's like everybody's basically screwed um, in one way or another. Everybody's going to have their problems. Everybody's going to get the, the, basically the beating. And then later in the book, there's a chapter titled Fast Fish and Loose Fish, which has really, really clear, like anti-colonial, anti-imperialism through lines, but also mm -hmm. pretty strong, like unifying narrative also about like religion and culture, which is that um man okay so it, when you're whaling there were specific tags specific harpoons used to mark whales which was basically mm -hmm. like, we are in pursuit of this whale do not capture um and that was called a fast fish and then a loose fish was an unmarked whale so a whale that was like right. up for grabs and he talks about kind of this process of marking and this process of claiming property that is like unclaimable or like like how can you claim it if you haven't yet caught it and then you know, and what if the whale shakes the harpoon? Like that happens. And and then he basically says, well, aren't we all just loose fish and fast fish too? Like, mm -hmm. are we not all just like property waiting to be claimed? Like, and and is really clear about like, yeah, in in all of this, there's no, like all of us are going to get got by somebody. And the question mm -hmm. is to what degree? And and Dreyfus, who's a philosopher, Herbert Dreyfus, does a did a really long lecture on Moby Dick, and he calls Ishmael not a polytheist but a polyreligionist. And so, mm. saying like part of one of the main themes of the book is Ishmael exploring not just dabbling in like multiple gods, but genuinely dabbling in multiple religions and like right. full religious sets of practices and finding out what that means for him. And you know, there are there's a lot of philosophy to unpack in him doing that, but I think it did do quite a bit to say, you know, regardless of religion, regardless of race, regardless of background, these snap judgments that we're making about people are really mm -hmm. not good. And realistically, like the, the snap judgments you're making about these people who have been conquered, these people who have been claimed, these people who have been, you know, who are fast fish, like you're next, like you know yeah and yeah and i think there's a couple of points there one just on the religious thing uh you know my own branch of christianity shares a lot in common and shares a lot of historical roots with what would eventually become both unitarianism and universalism which were two different schools that then kind of merged together and universalism is very much a product of new england philosophy and it comes much later but a lot of the early universalists look to Melville as one of their mm -hmm. kind of inspirations and that this book is one of the ideas of what eventually becomes universalism. The other thing is, I, I think all that idea of like that we're all kind of property in some way and, and all this stuff, it, very intentionally, 
he's writing this in a book in which there are characters who are functioning as free characters and people on this boat who would be regarded as property by yeah. half of the country that Melville right. is writing this book in. And I think that again, mm -hmm. it, it's a, you know, it's when we say it's a comment on slavery, we don't mean like this is someone looking back and saying slavery was wrong. He's right. writing this in 1850 when right. the the 1850 compromise is is happening and the the we, the tension that is building to the civil war is very much there um i think this is written a couple of years after um uh, uncle tom's cabin but it is seen very kind of similar as like another book that is that is written in part to make people angry that slavery exists mm -hmm. yeah and i think the other thing is that melville in a lot of really subtle ways and, and there are perks and drawbacks to this. Like there are a lot of different strategies when we talk about liberatory politics and, and modes of like conveying messages about various things and, and reaching audiences. And Moby Dick was not particularly popular when it was published, but like I think Melville in a lot of his subtler strategy and a lot of his strategy that is to say, right, because Queequeg cannot read. Um, and so, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, there's a there's a world in which he could say, oh, look at this, like, quote unquote, savage who can read, who is so intellectualized, who blah, 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 blah. But instead of writing that character, which might, you know, people didn't didn't have access to education the same way in that day and time, especially not if you were a person of color and especially not if you like were not wealthy. He writes a character who cannot read and then exposes very clearly, like, the virtue in his position regardless of the presence or the lack of presence of traditionally like white values through a, like through a, these subversive ways like when Ishmael and Queequeg go into a church and are listening to a sermon Queequeg remarks that everybody is looking around at all these plaques on the walls that have the names of dead sailors who died at sea because you can't give them tombstones you give them a, a plaque in the church and he says, everyone's like distracted by these plaques, except for Queequeg, because Queequeg can't read. So Queequeg is just intently focused on like the actual content of the sermon and, and the service and like remarks that like there's a there's a value in that. And like, hey, like, yeah. look at this really like it's not a, it's not about the skills acquired so much as like the the content of people's genuine existence. And that's like a strategy that. I think is, I don't know, I think really powerful in a lot of ways yeah. because he's not saying we need to turn all of these people who are not like us into us, which I think is a thing that at least in terms of disability and disability rights activism is often like a, a rabbit hole people down, turn down to, which is like, oh, we need to make you know disabled people more like able people by providing them with like mm -hmm. you know, biotic, bionic bodies so they can walk. And it's like, you could also just make things accessible. And so instead yeah. of, you know, trying Ishmael trying to be like, oh, look at how much like white people these these non-white people are. Ishmael is looking at them and saying, oh, look at this other culture and look at the values of it in places I would not have expected, which I think is really cool. And Very he does so. have judgment and he does have, you know, racist comments or or mm -hmm. assumptions. And you know, there are ingrained things that Melville misses as well. But yeah. 
that there's so much more we can talk about, and I want to make sure this doesn't go too long. And so there's just two last topics I'm going to touch on, and, mm-hmm. and one I think we can do fairly briefly, but I want to hear you talk about it a bit, because you've mentioned already, talk about queerness in, in mm-hmm. this. And I, I think it is very important anytime we talk about uh, you know, homosexual, homoeroticism themes in works that are not from today, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whether we're talking about something from the 19th century or, you know, going back to the Bible or anything in between or before, to remember that the the understandings that we have of sexuality and gender mm-hmm. are both scientifically, philosophically, erotically, everything fundamentally different from today. So be, mm-hmm. we're, we're not trying to read that back in, but given all that, which I'm sure you know even better than I do, talk to us about queerness and, and queer understandings of this book. Yeah, Um I think that there are definitely a lot of queer readings of this book. It's that in a lot of ways, I I have like complicated relationships with queer readings of this book because a lot of the queer readings come out of Ishmael and Queequeg's relationship and kind of their tenderness with one another and their closeness and um, their their relationship, their friendship. Um, and then the other pair that is often talked about regularly is Starbuck, who's the first mate, and Ahab, the captain. Mm-hmm. And you know, people read these characters as queer, and there's a lot of really positive readings of these characters as queer. And there are also, I think, a lot of positive readings of these characters as platonic friends that are demonstrating positive masculinity in platonic ways. Um, right. And I think both of those readings are valuable. And so I... And just to give a bit of context hard, here, that there are things that they go through that they talk about as marriage ceremonies between yeah. Kui And that language yeah. is used in the book, but as you said, it's a... Clearly, the book is talking about what happens among men mm-hmm. when they're totally separated from the world of women. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there's anything explicitly sexual in the book, but it's, no, it's no, that no, no. kind of level. So yeah, well, so it can be. Yeah, well, there's nothing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing explicitly sexual in the book. The from the very first night that Queequeg and Ishmael meet, you know, they're they, like Ishmael wakes up in the morning. He's like, oh, he was cuddling me as though I was his wife. Like they're basically spooning. Um, and right. then they like have a couple of nights where they're sharing this bed and in and, and they're very close. And then they share like hammocks later. And like Sarah, def- like it's in the modern age, it's really hard to read that and be like, yeah. huh, like what's going on there? Um, and the same is true of some of the closeness that Starbuck and Ahab show. Like Ahab in the very end, when he knows he's going on to chase this whale for the third day in a row after injuring himself and, and losing his prosthetic and injuring other people, like tells Starbuck to stay behind because he like loves and cares about Starbuck. And again, it's like hard to, to, to not read that in a way that is, you know, questioning whether there's a romantic sort of element there. Right. And it, Melville never does anything incredibly explicit. However, I think Which, the real- it, should, it should also be said, publishing a book in very Christian New England, 1850, oh, yeah, no. if there's any explicit content, it's not happening. So right, it right, doesn't mean right. it was not. Right, right. But the, I think the thing that, that speaks strongest towards looking at the book it, through a queer lens or with a queer pedagogy and theory behind it is this particular chapter called The Squeeze of the Hand. Um, and I won't get into like, a, well, okay, so when you when you're hunting sperm whales, you're hunting them for what is called spermaceti. And they used to think it was the whale sperm and it's not, it's, um, it's, uh, echolocation matter in the head. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it helps them echolocate and it's called spermaceti. And it's this like viscousy white fluid that they scoop out and then they boil it with a bunch of other whale oil that they boil out of the fat. 
And then they have to sit around and basically knead it and knead the lumps out of it. And so there's this chapter called The Squeeze of the Hand where Ishmael sits down and is squeezing sperm because it's abbreviated to being called mm-hmm. sperm and has this incredibly odd description of squeezing sperm alongside other men and how if all men could just squeeze each other's hands and squeeze sperm into each other's hands, the world's problems would be solved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the immediate next chapter is an, is then castrating the whale and turning the whale's castration skin into a cassock. So it's like it's like this incredibly homoerotic allegory immediately followed by an image of castration, which is just, it's too, like there's no way that that is a coincidence given the thoughtfulness and intention of Melville's writing. Like he has to have been saying something about not necessarily like homosexuality or gayness, but like queerness, like what it yeah. meant to be beyond the the normal limits of sexuality where there are no women, you're on a boat for four years minimum with a bunch of dudes mm. and what are you going to do? And then, you know, without getting into a bunch of details or depth being like, well, there's shame that comes along with it. And like the mm. immediate follow up to saying this blatantly is, is the image of castration. And so, yeah. Like, and he and and that image and that story and that allegory is like violent and not like he talks about the creation of the cassock, which is like this a garment that's made from like a, a whale, um, you know. But you can say penis, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like it's it's made from a whale's penis, but it and and it's like worn as a sign of honor, uh, mm-hmm. and so that's also strange because it's it's yeah, it was like this. He's very intentionally. And it's hard to figure out exactly what he's saying, but he's that coupled with the relationships between men that we see in the book. It's hard to not think that he's saying these things are not necessarily negative. And yeah, I, I think so. if, if nothing else, it seems that you can say that the characters go to a place where the normal rules of the, there being firm lines between religion between race, between class, all are getting thrown out the window. Mm-hmm. And part of that is out of necessity, but part of it makes you question how normal and why do we think that those rules should be? And I think gender and sexuality are also things there, but mm-hmm. writing at a time when, again, it's not to say that like he's, to to put our concept of homosexuality onto that, doesn't make any sense, but certainly mm-hmm. that they're asking the questions that continue to be mm-hmm. asked much later. Um, yeah, I want to cover just one last thing quickly, uh, and then um, yeah. I'm going to ask you more about the kind of the, the white whale idea and how it's become a metaphor. That's going to be in our Patreon section. But you know, Paul Hoppy is my normal co-host uh, or frequent guest, as he would prefer, to, uh, or frequent guest as they would be, prefer to be referred to. Um, uh, they're vegan and they're off, you know, I, I would have loved to have them on this podcast. I don't think there was any way they could have gotten through this description, but it, it, they have not just that I want to ask this for them, but they have gotten me to think about animal rights much more. So this is a book in a culture where sperm whales are seen simply as creatures that we can kill, even though we're being incredibly wasteful of them. We're just taking the oil from them. That is fully accepted. And it's not an animal rights book by any means, 
but at least from the description I got, it did seem like Ishmael is so taken by the beauty and the wonder and the the, the intelligence of these animals. Yeah, and yeah, he, yeah. He, he does come out somewhat questioning, like, does this really make sense for us to be mm-hmm. slaughtering these beasts just for one small part of them um, mm-hmm. and, and then throwing them away? Yeah, I there's actually full readings of Moby Dick that are entirely committed to the book being a work of environmental justice and uh, animal rights activism. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I would go that far, but the descriptions of whaling are brutal beyond the point of necessity and beyond the point of uh, sentimentality or romanticization. Yeah, like it's not meant to be sensationalized. Like it's it's very clearly described as a horror, um, like capital H horror. Uh, And it was like whaling as a process and there are places in the world where it happens still commercially, and there are places in the world where it happens for subsistence, which is different. But whaling in the United States, like the whaling industry, was never about subsistence, and it was it was yeah about the oil and the oil alone. Yeah. And they Ishmael is is like horrified and disgusted and says that pretty clearly and then spends a long time talking about how like these are intelligent creatures he he mm-hmm. he um juxtaposes them with the sharks which he calls non-intelligent he's like mm-hmm. somebody beats a shark with a shovel like i don't i don't know how like he, he doesn't care as much which is not like not necessarily the best take if you're talking about animal rights but right he, he's very clear that like, no, these whales are smart and these whales are caring and these whales have family structure and Moby Dick fights back. Like Moby Dick yeah. fights back because he knows we're coming to kill him. And, and, and that's like, I think very important is that where Ahab sees it as Moby Dick has broken the natural order. Moby Dick should be the hunted and I'm the hunter. Ishmael mm-hmm. recognizes like there's nothing evil about fighting back against the people who are trying to kill you. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, and I think it, it's interesting because Ahab thinks that Moby Dick is a personification of all that is wrong in the natural order. Starbuck thinks that Moby Dick is a, quote, dumb brute who, like, you can't be mad at, at a tree for falling. You can't be mad at a whale for right. being a whale. And Ishmael thinks, like, you can't be mad at a whale for fighting back when you're going to kill it. And right. I think that's pretty clear. And the other thing is that, like, it's not just once that we see Ishmael talk about kind of the brutality of hunting whales. It's mm-hmm. it's over and over and we see them hunt the whales. We see them clean the whales and cleaning whales was like a, you know, a horrible process. You have to basically haul the whale to your main ship and then like half lift it out of the water and then skin it. And, and, and like, because it was about the oil, but to get maximum oil, you want to take basically as much of the blubber off as you can and boil right. it. And then, and he talked really specifically for a long time about kind of like the, the hellish horror that was the tripods, which are the, uh, the, the pots you would burn the whale oil in. Yeah. And he calls it devilish and then talks about the, the atrocity that is, uh, stub, the, first, the, the third mate eating a whale steak by lamplight that is whale oil. Like, yeah. like how dare you eat this animal's flesh with the 
the like under the light that it is provided to you. And he then extends it to like like we don't eat geese with with goosebone utensils, but like maybe we do. Like we write with their feathers. And he yeah. he goes on this very contemplative like you know, why do I find this particular instance of, of sub eating the whale steak under the whale light perturbing when I don't find it that way in other instances? And like, maybe I should, and maybe these are things we need to be thinking about. And yeah. yeah. I think that's such an important theme because part of what it's about is, you know, people who have very rigid views of the world, when those are questioned, some just reject it, some crack like Ahab and Pip, and then mm-hmm. I think Ishmael's presented as kind of the ideal that because what clearly the Ishmael who is writing this book is much more educated than the Ishmael who was on the boat. And right, I think part right. of the idea is supposed to be that Ishmael was so moved by this that he was then like, let me learn more about all this. Right. Um, yeah. Two last kind of contextual things I want to add and then give you a last chance to respond and then we'll wrap up mm-hmm. uh, except for our patron section. One is that the Christianity of this time was very, very anti-nature. It was very much yeah. about, like, you know, the, the reading of, you know, Genesis of that there was this primordial, crazy, wild nature, and that God tamed it, and that God brought forth creation by defeating Leviathan, a mm-hmm. whale creature, by the way, very significant, mm-hmm. and that's mentioned mm-hmm. in some of the sermons, mm-hmm. and that you know, this anti that, that man is tasked by God to tame nature. And that mm-hmm. part of that is to make the animals all submit. Part of that is that, you know, indigenous peoples, both in the Americas themselves, but also in the South Seas, are seen as like too, you know, wild and nature bound. And they mm-hmm. need to be taught to wear clothes and to worship Christ and to drink whiskey like civilized people. Giving alcohol to indigenous people worked out so well. Um <laughs> Although very intentional in some in many cases, to be sure. So that's one part yeah. of the context. And then the other thing is, and I think this is something that they comment on very specifically, whaling was very romanticized in the literature and the art of the time. And Ishmael goes on these long rants about long treaties about how no artist has ever really fully captured what a whale really looks like yeah. and that the mm-hmm. accounts of the whales are, and it, it, it feels at first like a, why is he doing this until you kind of put it all together and realize it's, he's trying to say all of you who are romanticizing this are wrong. You don't understand right. whales. You don't understand what really happens on a whaling boat. Your romantic myths of this are all wrong. Yep. Yeah. And I think that there's a chapter that kind of summarizes those notions very well. Um, and it's like one of my favorite chapters of the book. It's very early on. It's called the Lee Shore. Uh, a character, it's like one of the, the first character death appears in that chapter. And it's very short. And the gist mm-hmm. is that Ishmael gives this whaling or this like sailor piece of sage advice, basically. And is like, a lot of people think that in a storm, you want to turn towards land for safety. Mm-hmm. You want the tame, calm land. But if you turn towards the lee shore, which lee where it is like downwind, and right. in, in a storm, you'll be dashed against the rocks. Like you will, you will not be able to control your boat as you go to shore. You will die. And so the best thing to do in the storm is to turn actually into the storm and like weather it. And so he says it is better to be, you know, 
it is better to die in the howling infinite than to be ingloriously dashed upon the lee. And I think that, you know, that sentiment is the, is the really the strongest through line of the book all in all, because Mm -hmm. Ahab is running from confronting his disability and his, you know, existential crisis. And Ishmael is running from, you know, depression and suicidal thoughts. And, and they're all running towards what seems like comfort, what seems like the shore, which is ironic because it happens to be a whaleboat, but rather than like turning into the storms they're facing and weathering them. And I think that's true of you know, the religious kind of elements at the time, the the sentiments of colonialism. And like, instead of fixing their own problems at home, people were running to where it seemed like safety, where it seemed like fun, where it seemed like new. Yeah. And it was you know, the cause of a lot of problems and a lot of death. Definitely. Definitely. Well, uh, thank you so much for being a part of this. You've been, uh, I, I, I'm so glad that this gave me the inspiration to find, well, read the spark notes. I should read the full book sometime, but to learn much more about the book and its world. And you've been such a font of great information and insight. I'm definitely gonna have you back on more podcasts, but for those Absolutely. who do want to find, find you more, uh, where can they find you? I know you said you, you do some content creation. I, I love your TikToks, especially thank where can you. people find you? Yeah. Um, TikTok is great. Uh, my username is AK Maiden, and there's like an underscore in between. And then uh, I do art on Instagram. My Instagram is Iron Kingdom Adventures with an underscore between each word. Um, nice. And yeah. And we'll have links to that in the show notes. Of course, uh, you can find all the ways to make contact with us. Uh, I know I've been bad about feedback. We're going to do a feedback episode soon. Uh, and then uh, at starting going forward, we'll make sure to include feedback in every episode. Um, I have a, a kind of a backlog of episodes. So I promise that, but then it's going to be a little while, but I promise you we're going to get to them. And then I'm going to be much more on top of having feedback regularly. I'm going to try for at least every second episode or every third episode at the bare minimum. Uh, and of course, but but on our pod, on our website, theethicalpanda.com, you can find all the ways to contact us, uh, email, Twitter, TikTok, etc. You can also find information on our Patreon. Um, you know, I'll be honest, I had a lot of, pl- Ahsoka was something I was really looking forward to trying to capitalize on. Every time there's a Star Wars show, my numbers go way up and I really had a whole like a plan of, of publicizing in advance. I'm putting all that on hold. And, uh, you know, I'm not asking you to make up that I, I am choosing to make that sacrifice because I think in, in capitalism, sometimes you got to put your own self-interest ahead uh, behind what is, is a larger group needs. And I'm going to support the strike. But if you, you think this might, this would definitely be a great time to, to support the Patreon if that's something you feel about. It's only a couple of bucks a month. And for that, you get ad-free episodes. You get the bonus content. Uh, and during the strike, 25% of everything I make on Patreon, I'm going to be donating to the strike funds that are helping keep people afloat. Uh, we know that the producers literally want to starve out the writers and the actors. These funds help make that help stop that happening. Uh, donate directly to them if you can, but also know that uh, some of the patron money that, that you're able to give is going to go directly to that. So on behalf of both of us, thank you all so much for listening. We have spoken. All right, to our patrons, welcome back. We're going to keep this pretty short, but I just want to ask you, you know, we don't really get to talk about it, but as I mentioned at the beginning, one of the things most people know about, one of the first things people think about when they think about Moby Dick is that idea of it's the perfect allegory for someone who was totally obsessed with something. And, you know, so it's often used as like when, a, you know, when someone just refuses to stop a pursuit, whether it's romantic, commercial, political, economic, whatever it is, they're described as an Ahab character, that that's their white whale. Mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. But I have two questions for you. And the first one is, is that accurate? Do you think that is a fair 
like it, it do you think it is kind of fair to the book that that has become the literary illusion that so many people know you know i've seen it used properly and i've seen it used improperly i think a lot of times it's like people want to conquer something and so like oh that's your white whale like finishing mm-hmm. you know like oh i really need to finish this book that i haven't read in forever like infinite jest or something like oh the white whale and it's like eh, that's not quite right and sometimes it's yeah. something that somebody is like really eating someone up like Mm. You know, I really need to get this part of my life together. I really like for I just absolutely have to like, I don't know, beat someone so at X competitive thing or, or yeah. even myself. And and I think those are a little bit more accurate. I think generally it's like it's a pretty fair kind of yeah. statement. It's a pretty fair like assessment of a surface reading of the book. Um, mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it's really apt because especially when people are saying it in like a, Hey, this is your white whale. Like you're really going for this and it might be detrimental to you and others. I think those yeah. are the times where I feel like that, that kind of phrase is best used. Yeah. I feel like, especially that detrimental to others, you know, and whether yeah. that's sometimes it can be like the people you're in a relationship with, but often it's the idea of you are responsible for others, whether it's a company or an army or something like that. And then it's when it is you that you are putting your personal need to accomplish this very specific goal. And in doing so, you're putting others in danger, whether it's economically or, you know, physically or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, well, yeah. so with that, um, the second question is, give us some examples of where you think it is well used. And I guess maybe I'll start with that Star Trek example I brought up. We are a, you know, kind of geeky content based Mm -hmm. thing. Um, I guess I'm assuming you've seen the movie. I don't know if you have, but if you've seen it, do you think that is a good use of it? If so, what, and either way, what are also some other ones you would bring up? Yeah. uh, I think that is a good use of it. I think I've seen Star Trek use Moby Dick references like a couple of times, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. Khan and, and, you know, all of that is the, yeah, and Wrath of Khan, yeah. the second movie, very much. He he right. literally he um, quotes Ahab. Like, he's aware right. that he's Ahab, and he doesn't yeah, care. Yeah, yeah, and I think those kind of allegories are really good. I think, um, I kind of think of things that I've seen semi-recently with, or, like, that I've been paying attention to, and honestly, I'm also not 100% sure what content is exactly struck right now and what is not. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to be careful. Um Mm, that's fair. Yeah, I I probably should have thought that to bring up the Star Trek stuff, but it's also I I'm comfortable yeah. mentioning it. You know, Star Trek is owned by yeah. Paramount, which is one of the ones that were striking. Yeah. But I'm comfortable bringing up things because we're not being like, "Hey, go out and watch this." We're just using it as right. examples. Yeah, I think uh, I think there was some references to it in Succession. And I think I see it a lot in terms of like business models or content. Mm-hmm. I think I saw it circulating in terms of. Uh, you know, the purchase of Twitter and Twitter changes yep. going on, people being like, oh, you know, uh, this is your white whale. Um, I think Elon Musk and, has definitely been described as an Ahab, not yeah, as yeah. a compliment. Yeah. Right. And I think, like, we you know, we started this episode talking about disability and then, and then mental health, and I think there are definitely some instances where people, you know, referencing people in relation to Ahab or white whales gets a little dicey in terms of mental health. Um, mm, yeah. And, and people you know, using Ahab's description of of insanity or madness as an insult, but in ways where it should not. But um, yeah, I think, I think like the places I think I've heard it best used is in, is in watching people who are wealthy, who are leaders, who are, you know, have a lot of sway over people make decisions are going to get people hurt. I think I heard it in regards to Trump 
um, more mm-hmm. than once and his various projects, particularly against like China um, yeah. and like we're referring to, to China or, or in Russia, like or building a wall white whale, or building a wall. Yeah. I heard like, Oh, you know, the wall is not white whale, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't like super frequent, but you know, hearing those turns of phrase here and there is like, okay, like, yeah, those are places where it's actually here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Well, all right. Thank you again so much for being a part of this. Uh, thank you all to you, the Patreons who got to hear this. You're really what makes this all possible. Uh, we're so grateful for what you do to make these podcasts possible. And we will talk to you next week. Bye.